0: Welcome to Sports History 101, a production of the Saints Sports Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome into episode number one of Sports History 101. I'm your host, Ray Delgado. Today, we'll be diving into the life of Herschel Walker. The name might be familiar to many of you, but I'm sure there is quite a bit of information that you probably didn't know about one of the greatest athletes ever. We'll start with his early life. He grew up in a small rural town... Of Wrightsville, Georgia, as one of seven kids. Uh, he grew up in about as rural a place as you could get, right in the middle between Atlanta and Savannah in Georgia. About two and a half hours from Atlanta and two hours from Savannah. So basically in the middle of nowhere. Um, if you've ever seen Herschel Walker, you would probably assume that he was born like that. He's just an unbelievable athlete. He's six foot one, over two hundred pounds, and just chiseled with muscle. But he was not always physically gifted. As a kid, he was actually a little overweight and had a stuttering problem, and that gave him a lot of issues. Uh, he, when he'd go outside and play really hard, he would actually get a nosebleed. So he really wasn't athletic either. And when he would actually run, he would get these, as he said, "quote big old knots that swelled on my knees." So. His, uh, his early life was definitely not, uh, star studded like we would imagine. Uh, he went to Johnson County elementary, middle and high school, um, and really struggled all the way up through seventh grade, uh, with his stutter and with just his self-esteem and things like that. And one day in seventh grade, he realized that if things were going to change, he would have to change them. Um, and From there, the work ethic that he would be famous for later in his professional football career showed up early and with ferocity. Uh, It's actually really admirable because he was probably, you know, 12 or 13, and he made this commitment to himself. And what he did was he read out loud to himself every day until his speech improved and he got rid of his um, stutter. And made a daily workout routine for himself, which included 1,500 push-ups, and 2,500 sit-ups at 12 or 13. It's absolutely insane. Not something I could ever do right now, let alone when I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, Naturally, with that, it did not take him long to become an athletic superstar. He rushed for over 6,000 yards and scored 86 touchdowns in high school. Uh, Albeit, it was in the lowest division of high school in the state, uh, but still, that was not a small feat no matter what level you were at. Uh, and He was also not just a great athlete. Along with his full football scholarship that he got to attend the University of Georgia because of his skill, he actually graduated valedictorian of his high school, which is no small achievement of its own. If you are a Georgia Bulldogs fan, then you already know about the just astonishing career that Herschel Walker had. But it was not as easy for the hometown team to lock down Walker as one might imagine. ESPN did this great piece uh, talking all about Walker's decision and his introduction to the Bulldog program. And what they talk about early on is Walker was very seriously considering going into the military because he actually wanted to be a Marine. Uh, He had felt that he had already accomplished so much in school, being the valedictorian in football with breaking every possible record there was and track when he was a, also a phenomenal sprinter that he wanted to try something new, but he also recognized that it was really important to his parents that he go to college. So he decided to go to college. Um, And he had no shortage of options. Literally every Division I school in the country wanted him. um, But, you know, given his location in the South, in Georgia, there were many schools that were out just literally by location. And they all knew that, but that did not diminish their want for Herschel Walker. Um, And after a little bit, he decided actually to go to Georgia, right down the road in Athens and play for head coach Vince Dooley. His recruitment was really interesting because they tried really hard to get Herschel Walker. And one of the things that they did that they hoped made a difference that I don't think they ever actually figured out if it made a difference or not was Herschel Walker was going to be playing in college in 1980 and his sister was a year older than him. And she was a really, really great track athlete, but Georgia didn't have a track program, a women's track program. And their plan was to add the program in 1981, a year later. But it was convenient because Vince Dooley, the head coach of the football team, was also the athletic director, as was common in in that time. And he decided that uh, they were just going to add women's track and field a year early to be able to give uh, Herschel Walker's sister, Veronica, a scholarship and she would actually become the first scholarship athlete um, for women's track and field at Georgia. Um, and she was a phenomenal athlete in herself. She ended up um, winning all American honors in track and field at Georgia and was just their whole family is, has to be gifted. And, and yeah, so that, that's, that was part of Herschel Walker's recruiting was actually his sister also basically getting the program started for her and given a full scholarship. Uh, So we fast forward a little bit to when Walker arrived, you know, he finished high school in May and shortly after, you know, football camp starts in the summer because the season starts in the in the fall. So you don't have much time. And when Herschel Walker arrived for his first camp with Georgia, he was just Far from impressive. Everyone from coaches to players were told about how fantastic this player was going to be, how he was going to revolutionize the program. He was going to put a new face on everything. And everyone from the coaches to the players were completely underwhelmed. He was a running back who was not breaking tackles, he wasn't reeling off explosive runs, and he just made all kinds of mistakes with his blocking assignments and things like that. So many, in fact, that coming out of preseason, He was tabbed as the fourth string running back behind Donnie McMickens, Carney Morris, and Matt Simon. Names that probably don't really matter that much for anyone listening, but you know, it's still, still worth noting that Herschel Walker was behind these three guys when he first started on the team. And he even admitted himself to, to some of the media that uh, he still had a lot to learn to be a good college football player at that point. So he was always very humble from the beginning to the end, and he recognized that he didn't deserve the starting spot because he just he wasn't there yet. The season started for the Bulldogs against Tennessee at Nayland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee. And that's that used to be a really tough place to play. Tennessee is nowhere near what they used to be. They used to be a powerhouse in football. So that was a huge deal. And the Bulldogs were ranked, but Tennessee was always a tough task. In the first half of that game, none of the three running backs that played, Herschel Walker was one of them, and the fourth was Hurt. Um, so the three running backs that played, none of them really had any any success. They all ran the ball a couple times, got a couple decent, decent yardage gains, but nothing spectacular, including Walker. At the half, Mike Caven, the Georgia running backs coach, told the offensive coordinator, George Hafner, that Herschel Walker had to be the number one back for the second half. Not really sure why that, that was, why he had that epiphany, but it definitely paid off. And after Mike Caven was able to convince Dooley, the head coach, then Herschel Walker started the second half of his first college game. In the third quarter, uh, Georgia was down 15-2, to two, and they had marched all the way down the field, and they were on the Tennessee 16-yard line. Uh, they set up. They, you know, got set. Uh, they snapped the ball, handed it off to Walker, who started right because it was a designed play to the right. But right before the snap, the defense changed formation to try and confuse the offensive line and their blocking assignments, which left a huge hole open to the left. So when Walker got the handoff, he started to the right, but then cut back to the left and had a wide open lane to the end zone, except for safety Bill Bates who lowered his head as Walker hit full stride and to quote Bates on what happened next. I looked into Herschel's eyes and realized he was not going to make a move. The next thing I knew I had footprints on my chest and turned around and saw number 34 running to the end zone for a touchdown. That's just, that's a fantastic image right there. I had footprints on my chest Uh, to put it another way from cave in the running backs coach. He took the straightest line to the end zone, and that was right through Bates. And that would actually go down as one of the most famous plays in the history of Georgia football. That that play is played over and over, and every Georgia fan knows about that and can recount exactly what happened. Uh, and that was Walker's first touchdown. Like I said, he, he walked into the end zone after he w- walked over Bates, and he would eventually score another touchdown in the fourth quarter that would be the game winner and uh, led Georgia to their 16-15 win over Tennessee. From that point on, Georgia just got rolling. They had just a fantastic season and they went undefeated and took down Notre Dame 17-10 in the Sugar Bowl and won a national championship. Much of the success obviously for the season was due to Walker who after starting the season as the fourth string running back, Uh, had the best freshman season of any running back of all time, finishing his first season in the NCAA with a record 1,616 yards. And in the process, set the records for, one, the most 200-yard games by a freshman with four, two, the average yards per game by a freshman, which was 146.9. He averaged 147 rushing yards a game, which is, wow. Three, he had the most all-purpose yards by a freshman, which is 1,805, and also had the most rushing rushing touchdowns with 15. An undeniably fantastic season. And he actually, unfortunately, finished third in the Heisman for that. Um, But nonetheless, he was still well-decorated after that season, being named a first-team All-American by seven different organizations. And that was really just the start of something fa- fantastic, something amazing. As a sophomore, he set the SEC record, so the Southeast Eastern Conference record, with 1,891 rushing yards and averaged 172 yards per game and scored 20 touchdowns. Those were all, all SEC records and all mind-blowing. He ran for 100-plus yards in 11 games that year, which is an NCAA record and obviously was named first-team All-American many more times. His junior season, he finally got over the hump and won the Heisman. He finished third his freshman year, finished second his sophomore year, and won it his junior year after he ran for 1,616 yards and set yet another NCAA record with three seasons gaining 1,500-plus yards. And also set the record for the most carries with almost 1,000 in three seasons. But as successful as he was on the football field, that was not his only only gig. He was also a member of the track team and was a star there too, as he was a two-time All-American in the 400 relay and the 60-yard dash. So all-around amazing athlete. Uh, One quote that I saw that was really indicative of Walker's time at Georgia said, when we put in Herschel, it was like night and day. I don't think he knew where he was running, but one thing was for sure. He was going somewhere in a hurry. That was said by uh, head coach Vince Dooley. Um, Yeah, he just had three, three great years, three historic years. And after that decided, made an unprecedented decision. Leave school early and turn pro in 1983 and forgo his senior season. So, with that, we'll take a break and be right back. Welcome back. We left off with Herschel Walker having the greatest three seasons a running back has ever had in college football. And the obvious decision for Walker was to continue to play at Georgia, play his senior season and then enter the NFL draft and go that route. But with his decision to forego his senior season, um, all of those options were out. The United States Football League was founded in 1982 as a spring football league and made its mission early on to be a top-tier league. Uh, They would play their first season in 1983, and the biggest decision that they made to really get that headline was to sign Walker to the richest contract in the history of professional football. They gave him $5 million over three years to play for the New Jersey Generals, which were the marquee franchise in that league. Now that $5 million might not sound like a lot today because Patrick Mahomes just got $400 million over 10 years, but that was huge money back in the day. Huge money. The biggest... Highest paid players in the NFL were making 700,000, 800,000 a year. So the fact that Walker was going to get a million plus every year was unbelievable. Leaving school early was something that was completely unprecedented. Nobody did that. And really, it didn't seem like it was a decision that Walker wanted fully to follow through with. Because earlier he had indicated and he had said to press that he wanted to return for his senior year and play with Georgia. He was only 823 yards away from setting the NCAA rushing record, which he absolutely would have set because with his three 1,500 plus yard seasons, he would. there's not a doubt in my mind that he would have become the all-time rushing record and would still hold that to this day. Uh, He, aside from that, he also wanted to run sprints in the 1984 Olympics, but unfortunately both dreams would never be realized once you turn pro because you have to be an amateur to compete in the NCAA and in the Olympics. His contract that he signed with the generals uh, paid Walker a million dollar signing bonus. So he had a million dollars right up front and then a million more for the 1983 season so the upcoming season. In 1984 he would get 1 million dollars and in 1985 he would get 1.25 million dollars. And if you're following along doing the math, that's only 4 and a quarter million dollars. Well, something else was also built into his contract which I had never heard of to this day and still have never seen this. The Generals Lent him seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was presumably for his investment portfolio, which just sounds odd to me. Why would a team lend a player three-quarters of a million dollars and and what whatever? Not not the point. That's just just an odd thing for sure. But he lived up to the money and the hype of being the league's big first signee in his first season. He ran for a league-high 1,800 yards on over 400 carries and scored 17 touchdowns, so no slouch whatsoever. Uh, The next year, in 1984, he rushed for 1,339 yards on just under 300 attempts and still scored 16 touchdowns. Another great year, a little bit of a sophomore slump, but he also got 100 less touches, so that's uh, to be expected. He by far had his best season in all of professional football in 1985. He being the record setter that he was gained a pro football record 2411 yards on 438 carries and scored 21 touchdowns. That number is never going to be touched again. There's there's no way about it. Unfortunately, that record is not recognized in the NFL, obviously, because it was not done in the NFL, even though the talent really was pretty comparable. So unfortunately, Eric Dickerson still holds the record, but Herschel Walker was a monster in 1985 and ran for over 2,400 yards. So coming off that huge season, Herschel Walker was obviously ready to go for next year and When Donald Trump actually bought the team the year before and spent all kinds of money, as you'd expect from Donald Trump, and turned the generals into a legitimate contender, and they were all ready to go for 1986. But aside from just stocking his team with top-tier talent, Donald Trump also had a terrible idea. And his terrible idea that he pushed and prodded and strong-armed the other owners into agreeing with was he would move the league from being a spring football league to the fall to compete with the NFL because Donald Trump was, honestly, he was jealous. He really wanted to be an NFL owner and they never let him buy a team and they never gave him the opportunity. So what his plan was, was to move the team, move the league, sorry, to the fall and then sue the NFL and basically force them to absorb the USFL teams, thus making Donald Trump an NFL owner. But it didn't quite go according to plan. The USFL did in fact sue the NFL over its antitrust exemption, And it's antitrust exemption means that basically the NFL is exempt from antitrust laws, which stop companies from having a monopoly. So antitrust laws basically make it so that one company cannot control the market in its entirety, because then they they set the market price and, and all kinds of bad things happen. But they... USFL sued them and actually won. So they beat the NFL and the court that I believe it was the Supreme Court ruled that, yes, the NFL has a monopoly and that the USFL was uh, deserving of, I guess, damages, compensation to some sort. So the USFL was awarded $1. They beat the NFL The court agreed that the NFL was a monopoly and for that reward, for all of the money they spent to sue and to plead their case and whatnot, they were awarded $1. And because of that, they had no money for the 1986 season. So what they actually ended up doing was suspending operations until 1987. So basically taking a year off to recoup their losses and kind of find out where they were headed, but the league never came back. They uh, Actually, Donald Trump pulled the plug on the league and said, you know what, it's not worth it anymore. I'm not going to get into the NFL like I wanted, so what's the point? What that meant for all the players was they were free to sign with NFL teams or Canadian Football League or anything like that um, because more than likely their contracts would not be honored because they were no longer part of a league. It went under. What that meant for Walker specifically was really interesting because in 1985, when all of this started swirling, that the USFL would move its season from spring to fall, the Dallas Cowboys had, had an idea that this was not going to go well. And they had a feeling that the USFL was going to be in trouble. So they actually took a gamble. And in the 1985 draft, NFL draft, uh, they drafted Herschel Walker. Now, that didn't mean that he was all of a sudden shipped from the New New Jersey Generals to the Dallas Cowboys because he was under contract in another league. But what it meant was the Cowboys had exclusive negotiating rights to Herschel Walker. Above any other NFL team. So, if something were to happen and he would want to play in the NFL, he could only negotiate with the Cowboys. And lo and behold, the USFL went under. And guess what? The Dallas Cowboys negotiated a contract with Herschel Walker. So, in August of 1986, the star running back signed a five year contract worth a million dollars a year and making him once again one of the highest-paid players in the league. He was 24 years old at the time, and in his first year, played all 16 games with the Cowboys, and split carries almost right down the middle with future Hall of Fame running back Tony Dorsett, who had rushed for more than 1,000 yards every year of his career to that point, except for one and was really not happy about the Herschel Walker situation because he was being superseded and Walker got like 400,000 more dollars a year than he did. And Dorsett was a phenomenal player for his entire career and felt he deserved more. And he really did. Um, And like I said, that caused some friction and in the first season they split carries, but in 19, 86 Walker started to, or sorry, 1987 Walker started to really usurp Dorsett in in the leading running back role, and while he still in his first year only got 100, only got half of the touches, Walker still ran for 737 yards, and accrued even more receiving yards with 837. So with Half the carries, he still almost ran for 800 yards. And the general generational talent that he was really stole the show in Dallas. And in 1987, he had an even better year and took the lion's share of the t- carries and ran for 891 yards and tacked on another 715 receiving yards and was a Pro Bowler, uh, which. Was fantastic for Herschel Walker, but really did not bode well for Tony Dorsett. Walker's best year in the NFL by far came in 1988 when he was the full-time running back. He really didn't split any with Dorsett and carried the ball 361 times. That allowed him to run for 1,514 yards. And total over 2,000 scrimmage yards for the year. Which, by all accounts, is a great season. And unfortunately, that uh, retired Tony Dorsett, he retired that year in 1988. The next year, in 1989, there was going to be a little bit of a shakeup. And for the first time in Dallas Cowboys history, since 1960, when the franchise was first First opened, the sidelines would not be patrolled by Tom Landry, that legendary coach who revolutionized football. He was the Dallas Cowboys. Tom Landry, if you ever talk about any of the legends in Cowboys history, Tom Landry is alongside them wearing his awesome fedora. He was was hard-nosed. He came up with all kinds of strategy. I'm pretty sure he was one of the people that helped pioneer the shotgun offense and really, really was, was special. 1989, Jerry Jones, the current owner, now we all know Jerry Jones, bought the team and immediately made a head coaching change. It really was long overdue. Landry had definitely lost his step. He was on his last leg, wasn't really coaching the team. His teams were getting old. He was getting old. And and it was time, but it was still a really unfriendly move. Uh, but Jones wanted to win, and he thought that the way to win was with Jimmy Johnson and hired Jimmy Johnson out of the University of Miami, where he had built a powerhouse powerhouse program uh, for the University of Miami. So he took over in 1989. And in Johnson's first season, the team, it did not go very well. The team had some promising players in rookie Troy Aikman and second year receiver Michael Irvin, two names that uh, are in the Hall of Fame, along with the obvious one in running back Herschel Walker, who really was the face of the franchise at that point. But in the early goings of the season, it just did not go well. The team was off to an 0-5 start through their first, first five weeks, and No one was really wanted to be there. No one, no one knew it was going to get any better. And Johnson specifically knew that with the team that they had, with the old guys that were just really, really on the back ends of their career, that it it, it was not going to get any better unless they made a change. So, according to a a Cowboys wire piece, uh, which is the USA Today, um, Page for the Cowboys on a morning jog in 1989 with some of his staff alongside him because that was how he conducted a lot of business meetings Jimmy Johnson did he went on a, a jog every morning and took some of his guys along with him to talk shop Johnson announced to the group we have to trade Herschel Walker huge statement and we'll break that down after the break Hopefully I left you with some shock at the way we ended before the break. Quote, we have to trade Herschel Walker. Naturally, Jimmy Johnson's coaches were floored because of what Herschel Walker meant to the organization. He was everything. Johnson's rationale, though, was like we mentioned earlier, the team was already terrible and they were the worst in the league. And he... He, being Walker, was the only Pro Bowl player on the team and therefore the only player with real worth. And Johnson really was not concerned with what was happening today in this season. He was a lot more concerned with the future and being able to build a sustainable team. And the only way to do that was to trade Walker. It didn't help Walker's case that Johnson really wasn't a fan of the way that he ran. Jimmy Johnson did not like the run-through-your-chest-and-put-footprints-on-it kind of kind of style. He liked the more finesse back, which makes sense with Emmett Smith, who we drafted a few years later. So he found Walker a lot less valuable than basically every other head coach in the league. So we started chopping him around, and he found a suitor in the Cleveland Browns. Uh, there was initially a deal in place with Cleveland that included a couple of first round picks and three second round picks. But Johnson thought that Walker was worth more than that. So he didn't think that was good enough. So he just tried to try and leverage the Browns by getting another franchise involved, which would basically force Cleveland to sweeten the pot and make a better offer. So Johnson made the decision and called the Minnesota Vikings, and really did not expect them to be interested. He laid out what he wanted for Walker, which was a king's ransom, and gave them a deadline of six thirty that that afternoon, and said, "If you want him, you have to give me put an offer in by then. If not, he's gone." And again, like I said, he really did not intend to hear back from Minnesota. He just wanted to to really put some pressure on the the Browns. But when Jimmy Johnson walked back into his office that afternoon, Minnesota had responded, and there was a, a fax on his desk. And after some negotiating, on October 12th, 1989, Herschel Walker was a Minnesota Viking. In what was considered, still is considered, the most complicated trade in NFL history, uh, we'll, we'll break it down how everyone made out. So first off, the Vikings got Herschel Walker, arguably the most dominant player in the league at the time. They also got two third round picks and a 10th round pick. Herschel Walker himself, aside from getting a new team, he got an exit bonus paid directly by Jerry Jones. He had a free house in Minnesota, comparable to the one that he had currently in Dallas, and also a Mercedes of his choice. So he got to pick whatever model of Mercedes. The Cowboys got all kinds of things, so we'll we'll try and try and keep it uh, keep it as simple as we can here. The Cowboys got linebackers Jesse Solomon and David Howard, defensive end Alex Stewart, running back Darren Nelson, cornerback Isaac Holt, and then a first, second, and sixth round pick the following year. So for 1990. All of these players were, they were all right. There was nothing special about them. They were serviceable, but weren't great, which prompted a lot of people to think like the writer, the reporter, Randy Galloway of the Dallas Morning News, who said, the Vikings got Herschel Walker. The Cowboys got nothing more than a huge handful of Minnesota smoke. And who knows if there'll ever be another fire. Aside from, you know, the, the really Debbie Downer part of that that's a really really great metaphor there got a handful of Minnesota smoke and who knows if there'll ever be another fire well he was wrong much like everyone else who thought the Cowboys just got raked over the coals what most people didn't know basically everybody didn't know was that each player that the Cowboys got from Minnesota had a conditional pick attached to him And the conditional picks and everything in sports can get really confusing, but we'll try and make it as simple as we can. Basically, that meant that if the player, the Vikings player that the Cowboys got, so there were five, so if each individually, if those players were not on the Cowboys roster the following February 1st, so they were in October, if they weren't all on the roster on February 1st of next year, Dallas would get a draft pick all of those draft picks for all five of those players were between the first and the third round. So they would get nothing worse than a third round pick. They got rid of two guys instantly. They, they, well, they released one guy and got his pick. And then the other guy they traded for another couple picks. And then it gets really dicey because Jimmy Johnson, as he said, um, he's been famous for saying he played fantasy football before there was fantasy football. Because in route to making his Cowboys dynasty, which would become legend later on, he made 51 trades and traded all kinds of players and picks and moved all kinds of things around. Um, But basically, it all started with this Herschel Walker trade and still goes down as one of the greatest moves in the history of sports for their For any team, because of what Dallas was able to build. For Herschel Walker, he wasted no time in Minnesota. He earned the love of Vikings fans very quickly, as in his first game, he ran for 148 yards on 18 carries and helps the Vikings beat the Packers, which the Vikings Packers rivalry is huge. Unfortunately for Herschel, in the two and a half years that he was with the Vikings, he was largely ineffective, and that was the best game he would ever have for the team, and never broke eighty rushing yards again. After the nineteen ninety one season, he was signed by the Eagles and had really a nice resurgent year. I'm I'm convinced that Herschel Walker really liked new surroundings, because um, in the one season that he played with the, or the first season I should say, with the Eagles, he. Ran for over a thousand yards for the first time since 1988 and played in all 16 games. Uh, the two succeeding years that he played with the Eagles were were productive, but they weren't weren't anything special. He tallied almost 1,300 yards and scored six touchdowns in two years, so nothing to write home about. After that, he played one year for the Giants and then was actually able to come back to the Cowboys for the 1996 and 97 seasons and close out his, his time there, um, close out his 15 year professional career. It's really easy to say and really easy to come to the conclusion that Walker was one of the best athletes to ever play football. He's in the college football hall of fame and was inducted in 1999 because he had the three best seasons that a running back has ever had. Unfortunately for him, he also had a really productive professional career, but his first three years were in the USFL. And because of that, he won't ever be a Pro Football Hall of Famer. His 8,225 NFL rushing yards puts him in a top 50 all-time but if you were to add in his USFL yardage, Walker would have almost 1,400 yards. He'd have 13,787, which would be sixth all-time. And if you add up all of his all-purpose yards from both leagues, he'd be number one all-time. Either way you look at it, he was an extraordinary football player who really should be a Hall of Famer regardless of the NFL's vendetta against recognizing the USFL stats. After he retired, he did have some issues. Um, He was diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder, also known as multi-personality disorder. And this led to him to have some issues with anger, especially because football was no longer an option. He didn't have that outlet for his anger. But after a while and after... Some unfortunate, uh, unfortunate instances, he made strive to made strides to fix that and became a much happier person. And now is just a, a happy person all the time. It's really cool. So he retired in 19, 1997, and in 2010, 13 years after he retired from football, at the age of 48, he signed on to compete in mixed martial arts. And with his fifth degree black belt, he knocked out both of the opponents that he fought. So he was, he finished two and zero for his career and never, you know, finished, or I shouldn't say finished, never moved on with that, but still having being able to fight and, and kick butt at 48 years old is awesome. And he still insists to this day he's I believe he he's 54. Now he's 58. But is still in phenomenal shape. In 2010 he retired in He retired in 1997. And in 2010, 13 years after he retired, at the age of 48, signed on to compete in MMA, mixed martial arts, and with his fifth degree black belt, knocked out both opponents in his two-fight career. So he finishes his career in fighting 2-0 at the age of 48, which is awesome. He's 58 now, and as of a few years ago, he was still insistent that he could he could play in the NFL, and if you looked at his physique, he probably still could. And it's it's worth noting that he stays in that shape to this day because of that that uh, work ethic he established as a 12-year-old doing his 1,500 push-ups and 3,000 sit-ups every day. Well, that uh, that wraps up. Herschel Walker, that wraps up episode one of Sports History 101. Hopefully you enjoyed it, and we see you next time. Until then, stay safe, and remember that Jesus loves you. Thanks for listening. Check out more content from the Saints Sports Network at saintsportsnetwork.home.blog.